Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. This time I'm exploring the most mysterious region on the whole map, medieval Scotland. A nation so young it still had no capital. Where wolves reigned over its highland wilderness and gangsters terrorized its borderlands. My journey begins just off the wild east coast of Scotland. I'm heading five miles out from the Firth of Forth into the unpredictable waters of the North Sea to a tiny island. Today, it's just a 45-minute trip, but the tidal currents and notoriously stormy seas made this a daunting trip for the medieval traveler. This might seem like an obscure place to start, but strangely, it's one of the few Scottish landmarks that you can clearly identify on the medieval map. Scotland is unrecognisable, not simply because it has been drawn on its side, but even when you turn the map around, you only know it's meant to be Scotland when you see it together with England and Wales. And compared to England, there's hardly any detail, all of which indicates that this was a map made in England. When this map was made, Scotland and England had been at war on and off for generations. So for the English mapmaker, these were unknown, uncharted lands. But what is fascinating is what he has put on. One thing that really jumps out is this, the Isle of May. But on the map, it's at least 10 times too big. But why is an island barely a mile long given such prominence? The map only offers one clue, a single building with a spire. And sure enough, there are medieval ruins here. The remains of the 12th century monastery built on the site of the grave of St. Adrian of Fife, a missionary who was slaughtered by Viking raiders after founding one of the first churches of Scotland. It became a popular pilgrimage site, despite what's often a treacherous sea crossing. In fact, this may have added to its attraction. For medieval pilgrims, the more grueling or dangerous the journey, the greater the spiritual benefit. But the monastery alone may not account for the significance of the island. By the time the golf map was drawn, this place had been abandoned for more than 30 years, so it's unlikely that the presence of the abbey alone warranted the prominence of the island on the map. More likely, it's what had sustained the monks and their abbey while they were here. 
Records show that the monks had survived by collecting tithes and taxes from ships that had called at the nearby coastal towns of Petwinen, Anstruther and Crail in Fife. These waters were on a major medieval shipping route attracting vessels from all over Europe for a once proud industry that's now all but disappeared. And what attracted people here was this, fish. A record of the time states that fish are found in such great abundance that from every shore of the sea, from England, Scotland, and even from Belgium and France, very many fishermen come here for the sake of fishing. They came to fish and to trade in fish. The modest town of Crail was then one of the biggest fish markets, not just in Scotland, but in the whole of medieval Europe. When you look at the golf map, one of the things that's really striking about the sort of Scottish end of it is that it's really dominated by the North Sea. And even along the top edge of the map, continental countries, Norway, Denmark, France, and there are three giant fish swimming in the sea here, which I think point to the fact that the North Sea was both a thoroughfare, it was the thing that connected them to the Scandinavian countries and to France, and also how they earned their living, how they filled their bellies with this delicious fish. The Isle of May would have been a well-known landmark to sailors from all over Europe. But the map would have been of no use as a maritime chart because the coastline is so inaccurate. The island, which sits at the mouth of the Firth of Forth, is depicted way out in the North Sea, and key ports like Crail aren't even marked. Inland, too, the map would have been of no practical use to the overland traveller. Few Scottish towns are identified, and there isn't a single route shown. In the heart of the highlands, what is really striking are the mountains. Fifteen mountain icons are shown, as well as a forbidding mountain barrier stretching from coast to coast. The English mapmaker has drawn a hostile and impenetrable wilderness, inhabited by terrifying beasts. Maddened by greed, they kill whatever they find. They get their name from their rapacity. They live on prey, on earth, and even on the wind. Wolves, known and feared throughout medieval Britain. The map duly registers a warning. Hic habundant lupi. Many wolves live here. It's striking that in a British context, the Northern Highlands may well have been perceived for many years as, as, a, as a wilderness, an area that was a sort of almost untouchable, untamable. Mm. And the wolf would again been a, a symbol of that wildness. But if you go back in history, the wolf has been associated with, with the embodiment of evil, really. That may well have come from the wolf's tendency to, to dig up dead bodies. And, and of course, as man started to impact on the wolf's habitat, it actually became quite desperate and could well have turned its attention to humans and viewed them as prey. And that would have uh, fueled fear and hatred on the part of, of, of God-fearing people in those days. Mm. Inherently, we have, this, we have this suspicion, if you like, of the wolf and, and, and perhaps more of what it symbolises rather than what it is.
medieval people believed each animal had a symbolic meaning. In the natural world, God had laid down a complete moral code for humankind, revealed through the character and habits of all his creatures. These interpretations were set out in a medieval book called The Bestiary. According to The Bestiary, the wolf was not only a savage predator, it was also evil, the embodiment of the devil himself, with eyes that shone like lanterns and the power to strike men dumb with its gaze. Wolves were depicted as rapacious beasts craving blood. Just like the devil, they circled the sheepfold of the faithful, intent on destroying their souls. The recommended procedure, should you be unlucky enough to run into a wild wolf, is a little bit surprising. The bestiary recommends that you strip off all your clothes, place them in a pile on the ground, and then stand on top of them while banging two stones together. And the wolf, recognizing the religious symbolism of what you've just done, will head off into the forest. Casting off your clothes revealed your sin, while the noise of the stones would summon the apostles. And with the Lord on your side, the devilish beast could be defeated. Associations between death and the devil led wolves to be hunted mercilessly in medieval Britain, and by the 1700s, they were extinct. Heading back south from the wild highlands towards the lowlands, I passed the only loch clearly marked on the map, Loch Tay. An inscription describes a floating island, fish without intestines, and a passage without wind which suggests that the mapmaker is relying on hearsay rather than first-hand geographic knowledge. The fertile lowlands of Scotland were where the wealth and power lay. In early medieval times, the Scottish king was the nominal head of a loose association of clans. This made Scotland vulnerable to attack from the English, and one town more than any other played a major role in uniting Scotland into a single nation, Stirling. Medieval Stirling was quite a bustling town. Broad Street here was home to the local market, which was heaving with goods produced in this, one of Scotland's most fertile regions, and also with luxury goods imported from overseas. Stirling was strategically located with its castle towering above the landscape. The mapmaker believed Scotland was cut in two by the Firth of Forth and chose the bridge at Stirling as the only crossing point. He was wrong on the detail, but right about the importance of the bridge, whoever held it could control all of Scotland. The only bit of the medieval castle that survives is this gatehouse built in 1380. The rest was destroyed during long and bitter wars against English domination. This castle saw several major turning points in Scotland's history. From up here, you can see medieval battlegrounds whose names lie at the very heart of Scottish national identity. Over there, William Wallace led his men to victory at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. And over there, Bannockburn, the site of Robert the Bruce's great triumph. 
Bannockburn was the defining moment in the struggle for independence. Robert the Bruce routed the larger English army, forcing the king himself, Edward II, to flee the field of battle. The victory paved the way for Scotland's recognition as a sovereign state. Ever since, the name of Bannockburn has been synonymous with Scottish pride. With the defeat of the English invaders, the Scottish royal court flourished at castles like Stirling, where some of their finest possessions are now being painstakingly recreated. Well, it's a 12-year project to weave seven tapestries for Stirling Castle. We looked at the inventories of James V to see what he had in his collection at that period of time, and we know from that he had well over 100 tapestries in his collection. All right. Tapestry at the time was a painting of the day, really. It was the highest art form you could have. The more silk and more gold they had, then the richer, the more wealthy they were. How long does it take to make something like the massive tapestry that we see behind us? That's taken three years, four months to weave. Um, that's a team of three weavers working full time. Oh, right. So what are you basing your designs upon? Um, an original set that's now housed in the Metropolitan Museum of New York. They're 500 years old, um, the series is called The Hunt of the Unicorn, um, and we know that there was a set within Stirling Castle called The Life of the Unicorn. Decorating his castle with such symbols of Christian purity, the king was asserting his morality and showing off his wealth. And just as important, tapestries were portable, for the king and his court were itinerant, traveling castle to castle, because medieval Scotland had no permanent capital. Around the time of the map, Scotland had far fewer towns than England, and most were tiny. Only five had over a thousand inhabitants. And while Edinburgh was beginning to emerge as a significant port, Glasgow had only just got onto the medieval map. East end of Glasgow is the oldest surviving cathedral in mainland Scotland. Obviously, it was built for the glory of God, but that's not all. It was also built for Scotland. The victories over the English at Bannockburn and Stirling had intensified the Scottish national pride, but its seeds were sown much earlier with this cathedral. To counter the influence of the English church, David I, one of Scotland's most influential kings, established this cathedral in 1136. In doing so, he made the Scottish church independent of English influence. It was a tactical move and a statement of national identity. David was trying to build a new Scotland, a strong and independent nation. He needed a self-governing church and this towering edifice symbolized his ambition. I absolutely love this building. I, I think it's remarkable. How long did it take to build, do you know? Well, the whole thing here is pretty much 100 years. But like any great cathedral church, there would never have been a time when there wasn't the sound of masons banging away. 
when the kings of Scots were creating their unified kingdom in the 12th century. They wanted to create a, a, a strong uh, centre of control here. And one of the ways that they could do that was by establishing the bishopric here. Uh, and it was an enormous bishopric. It was only secondary to St Andrews in terms of scale and importance. This church is about 300 feet long. It's an absolutely enormous building. To lend it even more status, it was built on the site of the sacred tomb of the revered 6th century missionary, St. Kentigern. The relics that the cathedral possessed of St. Kentigern were the most precious objects that they had here. The burial place of the saint is actually on a lower level down below us. So can you tell me a little bit about the saint here? Well, Kentigern was considered to be one of the bishops and evangelists of the early church. He was effectively the, the patron saint of this area of Scotland. Died in 614, aged 185, which wow. I think you'll agree is a bit of a miracle in itself. What was he taking? <laughs> was associated with lots of miracles during his own lifetime and then, of course, many posthumous miracles after his death. King David's scheme was a masterstroke. As early as 1180, the Bishop of Glasgow had begun reporting directly to Rome, bypassing any English interference. From then on, the Bishops of Glasgow became increasingly powerful. This is the oldest house in Glasgow. It's known as the Province Lordship, and it's nearly as old as the cathedral itself. It was built in the 1400s by the Bishop of Glasgow, but not for particularly religious purposes. The house was part of a medieval hospital for the poor. Average life expectancy was just 30, and the main weapons against disease were the herbs of the medieval physic garden, like the one recreated in the grounds here. Meadowsweet is a herb which we use to treat acidic conditions in the body. It's interesting, it's called nature's aspirin because it has salicylic acid in it, which is the pharmaceutical name for aspirin. Here we have lemon balm, commonly known as Melissa, and we use it for sort of anxieties that settle in the stomach and the head. Did the medieval uses for these herbs, do they translate into modern practice? I mean, are, were they right? Can you use these? In yeah, the this is elecampane leaf. Now, elecampane is a very dramatic herb above the ground. It's a long herb that grows as tall as you and I and has these great big leaves on it. But in fact, it's the root that we use in medicine. And this is a real kind of gorgon's head of elecampane root was used for phlegmatic, consumptive cough conditions like TB. Um, these days, we don't treat those conditions so much, but we do use this herb an awful lot in modern practice for chronic bronchitis through the winters, a very Scottish herb in that respect. We get very um, phlegmatic, damp chests in the winter. Elecampane root can be used externally in a plaster to treat neuralgias, sciatica, really? that kind of thing. Huh. So pop your wrist down, and that would just be bandaged around a neuralgic limb. And heat would be applied, oh, right. either by you know a warm stone or something like that, and the heat would help the actual elements to get into the mm. tissue. Have a little nibble of this one. Oh, that is really bitter. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jackie. It's wormwood. It's wormwood. Oh. And the whole wormwood family is incredibly bitter, but the bitterness <laughs> is where the medicine is. Um, wormwood does exactly what it says on the label. It's a herb that we would use for intestinal worms. In medieval times, there were a lot of worms around. 
it's a very powerful herb. If herbalists wanted to do that these days, we could use it, but we tend not to because it's quite a brutal herb. But that takes us back to this medieval tradition of purge and scour. Essentially, I think that they lived much closer to death. Therefore, they had to work fast and work with quite a bit of drama to get results. Um, also, perhaps the, you know, their patients wanted to see those results happening as well. So there was lots of laxatives. There were lots of herbs that would make you sick. There were lots of herbs like wormwood that would really scour out the intestines. So they'd be thrilled. They'd be like, wow, this is really working really because working. I can't stop vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> Following the modern route south to within reach of the border with England, there's more evidence of King David's strategy to unite Scotland. The great abbeys he built in the border territories, symbols of a proud new Scotland in the making. The Abbey of Melrose was one of the most majestic buildings in medieval Scotland. It's one of the four abbeys David built in this small region. Known as the Border Abbeys, they were the height of modernity, cutting-edge institutions, centers of learning, politics and commerce. Above all, they brought prestige. So David enticed monks to Scotland from all over Europe, tempting them with money to build new monasteries. He knew that these monasteries would bring with them culture, wealth and security. More importantly, he realised that building them here, right on the border, would send a powerful message to the English, just a few miles that away. It was such an important statement for King David, he almost broke the treasury building them. The ruins only hint at their former grandeur. And Melrose, built in 1136, was one of the richest in Scotland, eventually owning 20,000 acres of the surrounding land. The Abbey was a triumph. The monks introduced new farming techniques to the locals and made Melrose one of the biggest wool producers in Europe. The border abbeys were prime targets for the English, who completely destroyed Melrose in 1322. At great expense, Robert the Bruce rebuilt it. He was so attached to it, he even decreed his heart should be buried here. Robert the Bruce had always wanted to die a hero on crusade, but he didn't. He died near Dumbarton of an unclean ailment, almost certainly leprosy. But his dying wishes were honored when his heart was placed inside a casket and taken on crusade against the Muslims in Spain. It didn't do them much good though. Before they rode into battle, they hurled Bruce's casket before them, crying, wherever Bruce goes, Scotland follows. And then they rode into battle and were promptly butchered. The legend goes that Robert's heart was retrieved from the battlefield and brought back to Melrose Abbey. Strangely, about 10 years ago, archaeologists did find a lead casket right here under the abbey. And inside it was another lead casket. And on that lead casket was the legend. The enclosed lead casket containing a heart was found beneath the chapter house floor, March 1921 by His Majesty's Office of Works. That heart was reburied here on the anniversary of Robert the Bruce's celebrated victory over the English at Bannockburn. 
But of course, nobody really can be sure if this even is Robert the Bruce's heart. By driving only a few miles, I've reached the very south of modern Scotland. When the map was made around 1360, this region was part of the infamous Borderlands, probably the most lawless area in the whole of medieval Britain. No English mapmaker could possibly have made it this far north. These Borderlands were for the very brave or for the very foolish. Generations of warfare between England and Scotland made life here so risky, locals needed access to a place like this to stand any chance of surviving, a mini-fortress known as a Peel Tower. Stuck out here on the moors, you were vulnerable to attack from both sides of the border. Raiders would sweep through, burn your crops and steal your livestock, only to be followed a couple months later by a retaliating attack from the other side. It was relentless. All along the border, hundreds of fortified safe houses were built, like this one at Smalem, home of the Pringle family, yet to make a name in knitwear. Natural cliffs on three sides left attackers just one approach. Their only way in, a narrow staircase spiraling to favor the defender's sword arm. On the fourth floor, behind walls over two meters thick, there was space for up to 50 people to shelter. In the face of this constant onslaught, it was hard for the law-abiding to make a living. With their livelihoods in ruin, many of the border families turned to shadier professions. Cattle rustling, robbery, and racketeering became some of the only lucrative careers around here. They became the medieval mafia, notorious outlaw clans known as the Border Reavers. Despite their murderous ways, Reavers became great rogue heroes of the time, their names romanticized forever in local folklore. The Humes, Douglases, the Scots, the Turnbulls, Elliots and Armstrongs. The Douglas Humes, of course, the Johnsons, and then the Nixons were also Reavers. Wow. <laughs> That's a distinguished collection of names. <laughs> the Reavers had this great clan family tradition because there were sort of villains and vagabonds wandering around the borders. So in the ongoing wars between Scotland and England, whose side were the border Reavers on? They were a law unto themselves. They took sides when it suited them. They were opportunists, I would say. And without authority in this area, they decided that they were safer doing their own thing. And there was one wonderful story about um, a visitor wandering into Liddesdale territory, which was very dangerous, and at one point saying, are there any Christians here? And they said, no, only Elliots and Armstrongs. <laughs> <laughs> so is a part of you ashamed to bear a name of cattle rustlers and racketeers? <laughs> Why do you think I should be ashamed? I'm intensely <laughs> proud of it. Um, they were wonderful people, as long as you were on their side. Um, this was very important, and I'm very, proud, I'm very proud of their resourcefulness and their survival instincts, and they were tough, and I'm, no, I'm very proud of them. 
the Reavers' wild rule became such a problem it was declared legal to kill anyone living in the area. Eventually, many were driven from the region, their descendants scattered all over the world. The most famous even reached the moon, Neil Armstrong. But at the time of the map, the borderlands were a no-go zone for all but the most intrepid traveler. This would have huge implications for the golf map maker. Relying on word of mouth to build his picture of Britain, he had precious little information to go on from north of the border. No wonder he knew so little of Scotland's geography. Yet still, the golf map gives us an evocative glimpse of life here. The thriving abbeys and castles along the border, the dangerous wilderness inland, and the coasts famed for fish now long since gone. But medieval Scotland was so much more than this, and it's not hard to understand why they so desperately wanted to keep it for themselves. And the final part of the search for medieval Britain is next week at half past seven. Taking one last trip inside the medieval mind at nine this evening with a look at power. But first, the percussion category final for the Young Musician of the Year, next. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.